You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and I would like to do another in our lecture series. Um, and this time I will give a uh, lecture that was recently given in the Vosk School in Albuquerque, New Mexico on May the 8th, 2014. And this lecture uh, is entitled On Learning from Not Having Learned. And the subtitle is Some Later Thoughts on Another Sort of Learning. Now, Another Sort of Learning is a book of mine which was published by that of that title, which was published in 1988. And it is the book that more or less gives the uh, structure and outline of my ideas about teaching, learning, and university education in general. As usual, I like to begin with two quotations, which I ask you to consider. <clears throat> the first one is from C.S. Lewis's, from the second of his screw tape letters. It reads as following. He said, the disappointment, that is to say, there's a certain disappointment that occurs in our lives in these situations. This disappointment occurs when the boy has been enchanted by stories from the Odyssey, and but then when he buckles down to really learning Greek, he is disappointed. It comes when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The end of the quote. The second citation is from Boswell's Life of Johnson uh, in the year 1730. The quote No man had a more ardent love of literature or a higher respect for it than Johnson. His apartment in Pembroke College was over the gateway. The enthusiast for learning will never, um, will ever contemplate it with veneration. One day, while he was sitting uh, in uh, quite alone, Dr. Panting, then head of the college, overheard him uh, uttering this soliloquy in his strong, emphatic voice, and he said, well, I have a mind to see what is done in other places of learning. I'll go and visit universities abroad. I'll go to France and Italy. I'll go to Padua. And I'll mind my business there. For an Athenian blockhead is the worst of all blockheads. The end of the quotation. So keep those two quotations in mind as we go through, and we will come back and touch a little bit about what they meant. 
Now, the school we're at is called the Fosk School. It is a high school in Albuquerque where we are fortunate enough to have an auditorium uh, for this uh, particular lecture. Bosque is evidently the Spanish word for forest. Here in the southwest of the United States, it refers especially to woods along river bottoms. In this school, the river nearby is the famous Rio Grande. One can speak of being educated in a forest, or even, I suppose, of being educated by a forest. Tolkien, who had a special love of trees, uh, often spoke of what uh, the forest taught us. Our spiritual heritage speaks of a tree of knowledge of good and evil, with a garden as the original place of the first parents. The relations of gardens to parks and forests is an interesting one. I believe that the city of St. Louis has a large forest park, as does Everett Washington. In one sense today, we must almost say that all of our natural forests uh, spread throughout the country are cared for as large-scale gardens and parks. In the middle of Munich, Germany, is a lovely park called the English Garden. The English Garden is more uh, kind of let grow than the formal Italian garden. We probably have uh, no more forest primeval left in the world. Even the jungles in Brazil come under government control. We go out of our way to prevent development of certain woods and, and lands. In a way, nature becomes more nature when it comes under the scope of human understanding. Nature was not meant simply to be nature. It was also meant to be understood as nature. The things of nature have their own intelligence about them. And not intelligence so much, but intelligibilities about them. A school in a forest uh, setting is designed in the first place to be a school, not a forest. This particular school was founded in 1994, so it's, it is a mere 20 years old. Its first graduates are still not nearly into what Cicero called old age. The state in which the school is located is not in old, but in New Mexico. New Mexico entered the Union in January, on January the 6th, 1912. My father was born in Iowa in 1904. In the beginning, I cited a passage from James Boswell, writing in 1730. This was 46 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence and 127 years after the founding of Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. 
I taught in a university in Rome founded in 1551. The usual date uh, given for the founding of the city of Rome is 753 BC. Thus, in terms of Roman dating, this year, 2014 AD, is listed as Av Orbe Condita 2767. That is, from the founding of the city of Rome, 2767 years. I used to insist that students know, among other things, the dates of the deaths of Socrates, Aristotle, Cicero, Augustine, and Aquinas. From the time of Abraham to the time of Socrates was approximately 800 years. From the time of Socrates, who died in 399 BC, to the death of Augustine, who died in 430 B.C. was another 800 years. From Augustine to St. Thomas Aquinas was 800 years, and he died in 1274. And from Aquinas to our day is likewise another 800 years. These are time sequences and dates uh, that anyone can remember from early years if he but learns them, tries to. They serve to give some uh, time perspective and structure to our history. We also know of ancient Chinese, Hindu, and Inca calendars. The age of the universe itself is said to be uh, around 13.7 billion years. We like to know uh, what went on, where, and involving whom. Some education in time and space statistics in history and geography is appropriate uh, to the young mind uh, whose um, memories are still alert. It is good to know that the wheres and the whims of things. If we do not take the trouble to know what happened in time and space, we will not be able to place things in uh, relation to uh, other things. Everything will come together as one time and one space, or all things are collapsed into a one blurry time and one fuzzy space. Knowledge of times and places is not the most important or most profound kind of knowledge of learning, but it does provide the context and the arena uh, for what are the higher things. <clears throat> Again, I mention uh, this point here as such things are best learned when we are young. We do not waste our time when we know more than our time and our, our place. But can we not just look up these things and play times and places on our cell phone? 
No one needs to remember anything. The machine will do it for us. And yet machines do not know relationships. How the thing, how the Battle of Hastings in 1066 is related to the Plantagenet House of the English Monarchy. No machine knows that it knows. And yet there is too much to remember, uh, uh, no doubt, in the world. It's overwhelming. Why not then let the machine do it? The machine is a helpful tool uh, for memory, no doubt about it. But if nothing is actually in our heads, we will not see how this relates to that. Uh, that is what the mind is for, to see the connection, the order of things. And how do we know what we should remember? It is known that 224 different languages are spoken in homes in Los Angeles. If someone knows how to read or to speak more than five or six languages, he is doing very well. Doesn't or shouldn't everyone speak English or Spanish, uh, even those of billions of Chinese, Hindus, and others? Well, no. But some, language, some languages have, are more widely spoken and used than others. All through history, there has been the phenomenon of what I call today English as a second language. <clears throat> that is, sometimes the main uh, or second language was, was Greek. That was the result of the conquest of Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC. That conquest is the reason the New Testament was originally written in Greek and not Hebrew or Aramaic. But after the Roman conquest of the Greeks, uh, much of uh, Africa, Asia, and Europe, uh, then Latin became the common language of use. When we speak Spanish or English today, we are using, for the most part, a dialect of Latin, though English also has a lot of German in it. <clears throat> Am I suggesting that you go out and learn 224 languages so that you can get along with everyone in Los Angeles? Well, obviously not. But I am suggesting that you had better learn to read, write, and speak at least one language really well. And it would help to learn a couple of more. You can begin to do this in a school in the, in the Bosque and in the forest, but only if you will, only if you want to, only if you work at it. Many people will, with little education, learn languages just because they want to or need to. But knowing uh, how to speak a language and knowing how to write it and knowing how its literature are more difficult, but usually, at some point, uh, delightful projects.
That was the point in the beginning of citing the passage from the Screwtape Letters about the young man who was enchanted with the stories from Homer's Odyssey, a good thing. <clears throat> but he found out that to read Homer, the Homeric tales, properly, he would have to learn Greek. And learning Greek was hard work, not impossible, but not always easy. And yet, unless he learned the Greek, the young man would not be free to read Homer as he could be. As in so many things, as in tennis, for example, or golf, uh, we are not really free to play the game unless we go through the difficulty of learning how to play well. No one is likely ever to have told us that much of the learning, much of learning is not IQ or native intelligence, but willpower, uh, docility, the capacity to be taught. We need the will to discipline ourselves, to find uh, good teachers, to follow instructions. We need the will to give up things, to give up things so that we have the time to do what is important. Where are we going to find the time to learn all that is needed or, uh, or the, all that we want to learn? <clears throat> I once heard the story of an old Indian uh, woman. Uh, someone was complaining to her that he did not have enough time. And she looked at him for a while and replied, you have all the time that there is. And this is one of the things that I want to tell you in this talk. You do have all of the time that there is. We are all busy about many things. Our lives in this world pass with infinite limits. It is said that even though every fact is at our fingertips, we spend much time, as it were, horizontally, not vertically. That is, we spend much time uh, on various electronic devices talking to each other about almost I know not what things. And one of the things that I will want to tell you this, uh, in this lecture is that talking to our friends, while a good thing, improves in quality uh, when we know what things are most important to talk about. Chatter, bantering, and vague uh, musings have their place, no doubt, but they are not what we actually mean by conversing about the highest thing. For this latter endeavor, you need to read, think, study, pray, write, and experience life. Again, where do we find the time? I like to recommend uh, the book of the Western novelist, novelist Louis Lemoore called The Education of a Wandering Man. This book is an account of how Lemoore uh, 
found the time to read. He read his way through the history of the Old West, its geography, Indians, hills, guns, animals, wars, and lore. He showed how everyone has many moments when he could read if he wanted to or disciplined himself to do so. In what normally be called free time or downtime, he read many books, uh, the titles of which he recorded in his book. No book, with the possible exception of uh, Sertayanja's book, The Intellectual Life, is quite so useful in explaining to us how much time we have uh, if we pay attention to the details of our daily lives. Uh, this lecture I have entitled On Learning from Not Having Learned. Another version of this same idea would be that we can learn from our mistakes. But here I have something a little different in mind. It is quite possible to have many academic degrees, but still not really be well-educated. It is possible to read widely, but not to have read well. I might call what I have uh, in mind uh, remedial liberal arts, but still that is not quite the point here either. What I have in mind is an aspect of a larger project that I have called another sort of learning. On one of my early walks, when I had first arrived in Washington, D.C. to teach, I went by a bookstore on L Street. Seemingly by chance, I went in. I saw a shelf of uh, remainders for sale, uh, mostly paperback books. In those days, I was busy uh, flushing out my own personal library, something I recommend as basic in learning. Not Kindle, not iPads, but books, your books, things you have held in your hands as you read. In this sense, I am uh, still a fan of used bookstores, where often uh, uh, the wisdom of the ages is available for a relatively modest price, if you know what you are <clears throat> what you are looking for. In this store, I came across a book of the British German economist E. F. Schumacher. The book was called A Guide for the Perplexed. I had read Schumacher's well-known book, Small is Beautiful, but I had never heard of this uh, book, at least by Schumacher. The title is the same as that of a book of the famous medieval Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides. Just why Schumacher chose this already famous title was uh, intentionally provocative. So as a kind of act of faith, I bought the book and read it. I was astonished by this short book. Indeed, I have noticed how often the best books 
are the short ones, though not always. Uh, of course, for I know about the long Russian novels. I have recommended the Schumacher book, uh, Guide for the Flex, and assigned it many times uh, ever, ever since the year that I first bought it in 1978. Schumacher recalled that the perplexed of the Middle Ages were those Jews, Muslims, and Christians who were suddenly confronted with the work of Aristotle, finally reaching them from the East. They had their own books of Revelation, but did not realize the extent of what Aristotle knew by the use of his own mind. So they had to relate reason to Revelation, lest they be uh, incoherent enough to hold, as some did, that both reason and Revelation could be true even if they contradicted each other. Uh, this, of course, this danger, uh, contradiction is impossible. And what we know of as a university actually came out of this background. Universitas. How do all things fit together in a coherent whole, including revelation? What I have, uh, am concerned about here in this lecture is mostly the first chapter of this uh, Schumacher book. Uh, Schumacher had been a young teenage German in an English detention camp uh, during World War II. Evidently, he was caught in England. He lived with his parents in England uh, when the war started. When old enough, he matriculated at Oxford University, then generally held to be the premier university in the world. But as he, uh, a, a no doubt precocious young man, studied there, he was increasingly upset and perplexed. While he was doing well as a student in uh, the subject actually taught, Schumacher was an economist. But he had the growing feeling that little of real human uh, importance was actually being taught or discussed uh, in his studies. Everything served uh, seemed to be based on a reductionist methodology that somehow filtered out any serious discussion of what could uh, not be measured. Schumacher knew that the origin of this reductionist approach had been had to do with the French philosopher Descartes, usually said to be the founder of modern philosophy. But most of what is really important to us as human beings is not quantifiable. It must be reached by other philosophical approaches. His uh, so his education seems to, uh, to be of little value to him. In other words, he realized that he had to look elsewhere for guidance and uh, insight into the areas of really the most concerned our kind. <clears throat> this little book 
was the result of his experience. It is astonishing how it matches the academic experience of so many other well-degreed people. As a young man, I had a similar experience. I had been to a semester of college. World War II was just over. I found myself in the Army at the engineering school, then located at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. We had some free time, and somehow I had not read much in high school, even uh, with getting pretty good grades. And still, the time at Santa Clara gave me the feeling that I was missing something. I needed to read. So I recalled going into the post library one evening. It was fairly large but modest uh, military uh, post library. As I looked about, I suddenly realized that I had no idea of what to read, even when I realized that I should read. I knew that you did not just pick up any old book or begin with the letter A and work your way to the letter Z. That library was still in the old Dewey Decimal System of Classification. No one had time enough to read every book in any good library, even in a long lifetime. Besides, knowledge seemed to have some sort of elusive order to it that I did not understand. Some things were more important than others. Indeed, unless you had read certain things, Plato or Scripture, for instance, other things would not be intelligible to you. Maybe it was this order that universities and colleges were originally designed to teach. At least that is what Dorothy Sayers thought in her famous essay, The Tools of Lost Learning, an essay which you can simply find on Google by typing in her name and the tools, uh, lost tools of learning. Later, I left the Army and spent another year at Santa Clara. I had first tried to major in chemistry. My problem was the opposite of that of most students in the class. That is, I could work out the mathematics, but not the experiment on which it was the mathematics was based. I was next in the business school. I found it deadly boring. So I joined the Society of Jesus, a kind of leap in, in the dark. There, along among other things, we were given 15 or so years to read and study, get degrees, and hopefully some start at wisdom. But I always had this nagging image of the young man or young lady who finds himself in the midst of vast arrays of knowledge, vast reams of knowledge, but no idea where to begin or what to read. And subsequently, I imagined lots of students in all sorts of colleges uh, in this and other countries who had the same experience as the young Schumacher. They were pretty sure that they were 
really learning little of what was really important. But they were implicitly told that what they were missing was not important. In addition, I had my own experience. So this is the origin of the title of the present lecture, Learning from Not Having Learned. In an old Peanuts cartoon series, Lucy is sitting on the floor reading a book. Linus comes up to her, obviously working out his math assignment. He asks her, Lucy, how much is six from four? In the next sentence, she looks up at him and tells to tell him, six from four, you can't subtract six from four. She goes back to her, her reading, while Linus looks on her, uh, but she continues, you can't subtract a bigger number from a smaller number. But this information uh, makes Linus simply mad. He yells at her in the next scene, and in a, uh, to a befuddled Lucy, he says, you can if you're stupid. And that is the thought I want to uh, leave you with. We can do many things if we insist in being stupid, but something will always go wrong with them when we uh, accept stupid or false ideas. Our stupidities are also sources of light if we would see where they go wrong, where we go wrong. And yet, it is a first principle, that is something whose truth is seen in the very statement that no one really wants to be stupid, not even Linus. He wants the answer. He is just not yet old enough to understand minus numbers. What I call another sort of learning is the finding and reading uh, those seminal books that take us to the truth and order of things. No doubt there are many such books that do this, and I only know a few of them. But I constantly think of the student in the uh, in their late teens and early 20s who somehow sense that what they are studying uh, misses some of the vital elements, uh, some insight into the real nature of things. Or I have uh, and in mind many folks who later in life, uh, after settling into their jobs in life, have realized that something has been missing in their formal education. I often receive letters or emails uh, from men and women in, uh, in their 50s who suddenly have some time uh, from busy lives to realize that how much they have missed. But the spirit I want to leave you with is encapsulated in the title of a recent book of mine uh, called Reasonable Pleasures. The title of that book is really from Aristotle, who pointed out that all of our human activities are endowed by nature with a corresponding pleasure designed, in effect, 
to enhance and foster the activity in which it exists. And Aristotle pointed out that there is a pleasure proper to thinking. Indeed, he suggested that if we do not ex uh, discover this delight in our own uh, experience, we are likely to confuse it with other activities and other pleasures. Indeed, there is a true delight in knowing. I have sought out and found many books that make sense and at the same time delight us. These are the Sunday book, book lists that uh, you will find me proposing in, in most of my books. Indeed, this evening I have a list of those books. One final word. In some sense, the most important chapter in another sort of learning is the one called What a Student Owes His Teacher. Students often tell me that it never occurred to them that they owed anything, not even gratitude to their teachers. When we are fortunate enough to find a good teacher, he can take us to important things faster than we can make it there by our own uh, unguided selves. And remember, our best teachers do not necessarily have to be alive in our own time or in our own place. It has been my experience from many years of teaching that the best teachers often lived thousands of years before our time. Plato remains the best in so many ways of these. In the beginning, I cited a passage from Boswell, a book that is itself an education in the highest things, a long book uh, that is best read a few pages a day. Johnson is in Pembroke College. He is overheard in a moment of anguish, and he realizes that what he is learning in Oxford is not everything. He had better find out what is going on elsewhere in Padua, Paris, or Rome. And he sums up his uh, realization by the striking phrase, there is no blockhead like an Athenian blockhead. What does this blunt phrase mean? Athens is the great city of the philosophers. It is still the city that represents intelligence. Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome. Revelation, reason, and law. So, if all we know is Athens, we know much. But if we think that we know that, th that this is sufficient, we are but blockheads. And so, we think of what Lemur called the education of a wandering or wayfaring man. We can, I hope, uh, take as our own that searching for, that wandering about books that explain things to us, the important things, the highest things. Aristotle was right. There is a pleasure in knowing. 
we really will not rest, to use Augustine's words, until we know what is to be known and delight in it. Nothing less explains why Schumacher was unsettled at Oxford or why we still want to learn, not having learned so many things from what we did, in fact, learn. The end of the lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.